Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development. And each Friday, we invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. And good morning to Dr. Matthew Peters, our Chief Resident Economist. Matthew, yesterday, the ABS released the latest labour force data stats for September. Now, I recall that last month we had a surprise result in less than expected unemployment. So was there any data in this month's update they caught your eye. Well, Craig, yesterday's data showed the nation's first month of job losses since May. We weren't surprised as we knew the impact of the Victorian lockdown would show up in this month's data. In fact, the other mainland states all recorded positive employment outcomes. Look, the unemployment rate also ticked up by a tenth of percent to uh, 6.9 percent, but the unemployment rate remains uh, a very poor guide of the extent of labour market weakness, with the data showing that we still have 200,000 people that are working zero hours, and the underemployment rate remains around about 11%. Now, Matthew, in the October budget, the government came in for some criticism for not acknowledging the severe impact that COVID has had on the female population. Has the latest labour force data provided any further insights here? Well, actually, Craig, job losses since the onset of COVID in March is actually less among females at 260,000 job losses than for males who were down 222,000. And that's about the same as a percentage of the underlying male and female workforce, about 3.5%. But I think it disguises something about COVID that's, that does have a gender bias associated with it. At the height of the job losses, you go back to May, Job losses in women actually outpaced men by 481,000 job losses compared to 393,000 job losses. But since that low point, women have recovered 276,000 jobs compared to 170,000 for men. Now, the disparity in these outcomes, I think, is, is partly related, not entirely, but partly related to the performance of industries in which women are highly represented, such as accommodation and food service, education and healthcare. They all took heavy hits in the first months of COVID, and they've been industries that have been rebounding uh, relatively more strongly uh, since May. Well, that's good news. You're listening to Craig Balanzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresights shaping the investment outlook. Matthew, this week we also had the RBA Governor, Philip Lowe, update the market. Does the labour force data lead you to conclude any further steps the RBA might be looking to take? Well, look, uh, Craig, that's a good point. A key message of Governor Lowe's yesterday in his speech was the bank's focus on job creation. Now, that is a theme that he has been consistent with. But yesterday, he emphasised that when the economy was locked down in that period of March and April, the bank felt that further easing of monetary policy would have little impact on improving the economy or helping the unemployed, and that this was better handled by fiscal policy, particularly in the form of the JobKeeper program and the JobSeeker supplement. Now that the economy is reopening, though, Governor Lowe's indicated that monetary easing is better placed to stimulate the economy than it was previously and to help with job growth. Another thing that he emphasised was the impact of easing by central banks um, overseas, which hits us through upward pressure on our exchange rate. The RBA has potential to buy government bonds at the longer end of the yield curve, which would narrow interest rate differentials with the rest of the world and take pressure off the exchange rate. Now, both of these announcements uh, emphasising 
the reopening of the economy and the benefit that monetary policy can give to the job market in that environment, as well as the fact that the exchange rates under pressure because of easings um, overseas, I think is a clear message to the market. You're going to see rate cuts in November from the RBA, as well as additional bond purchases along the yield curve. And of course, Matthew, that labour force data in September should only help Philip Lowe with that decision as well. You mentioned uh, in that uh, response, the economy reopening and overseas, Matthew, we're seeing some very worrying signs through large spikes in new COVID cases in what seems to be a real clear renewed wave, uh, particularly affecting most of the European nations. Can you please summarise the situation for us? Well, um, yes, it's it's a worrying situation. We've seen a spike in uh, daily case rates, particularly in Europe. So after a period of stability over July and August, those uh, global daily case rates have really started to climb again, uh, starting in September, and they've taken a really sharp jump higher over the first two weeks of October. Nowhere is this more evident than in Spain, France, UK, Italy, uh, Germany, and, and actually Russia as well. They're all experiencing second waves uh, with daily case rates exceeding those of the first wave. And unfortunately, we're also seeing uh, case rates creep higher in the US. Thankfully, though, uh, death rates have remained well contained. Uh, so that enables, I think, the economies to avoid the really sharp lockdowns that we saw back in February and March in those economies. Nonetheless, those high number of cases threaten to overwhelm uh, hospitals and uh, restrictions have been reimposed in most of those countries. So when you look at the demographics of this particular second wave, Matthew, do you see an impact to the hospital system or is because of the way that the COVID is now going through those nations and the, the age group, do you feel that it's not going to have quite the same impact? Yeah, well, uh, what we're seeing now is the demographics being affected is is the uh, younger people from predominantly 20 to 40 years old, whereas uh, in the first wave, the uh, hospital system got overwhelmed because of the impact on the older people, uh, the older generations. What we're seeing now is that there's greater um, uh, emphasis on protecting uh, the age group. So uh, the uh, hospital system, the death rate isn't quite under the same stress. But if you get um, such high case rates, and as I said, they're in excess of what we had in the first wave, even for younger people, you're going to get a large number of people uh, still requiring hospitalisation. And that's the risk that we run at the moment in, the, in Europe. So then let's get into that. What's the likely economic impact in your opinion then? Well, at the moment, if they can keep the economies open and they can and uh, keep the restrictions, which are at the moment really moving from our equivalent of stage one to stage two in localised manner across those countries, um, then I think the, uh, the hit to the economy will be nowhere near as severe as what we saw uh, in the first wave. And so it is probably manageable. The real risk, I think, is if they don't keep it under control, that the hospital system comes under extreme pressure. We've also got an issue there with, with the uh, health workers um, experiencing exhaustion. It's not just the matter of not having enough beds. Um, but if that if it escalates much more, I think, beyond where it currently is, then we run the risk of going to higher stages of lockdown and we could find ourselves back to where we were in February and March. 
You're listening to Craig Balanzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the latest economic foresight shaping our investment outlook. Matthew, if Europe goes into this lockdown, for investors, what is the direct impact to us of Europe going through that lockdown process? Look, Europe is, in terms of the size of its economy, is uh, as large as China, the European uh, region. Now, if you have Europe going into lockdown, as it did in in, uh, February and March, in that period, it lost 8% of GDP. Now, that'll have an enormous impact on the, uh, the global economy. Now, for us in Australia, I think it's going to be uh, the, the fallout can be particularly damaging because for China, Europe is its largest customer. So the fallout to China would be significant if the European economy was to uh, once again collapse, and that would have ramifications for us. Now, initially, I think what you would see is the Australian dollar come under enormous pressure, notwithstanding the fact that the Europeans and other uh, central banks would be cutting interest rates, just the, the hit to global growth would collapse our dollar. And the prospect of uh, a reduction in China demand for our uh, commodities would also um, be a negative. However, as we saw in the first uh, wave, China's response, if it is to um, ratchet up fiscal stimulus, particularly infrastructure spending and, and support of the property market, may see the same perverse effect that we had on the first wave is increase in demand for our commodity imports, improvement in our terms of trade, and it end up being a net positive for Australia. Thanks, Matthew. Um, I suppose that then leads to the next obvious question that you referred to the Australian impact. What's the probability now of a negative interest rate this financial year? Well, I think from being very, very low now to being substantial or significant. I don't think it's 50-50 yet, but it's certainly more than 25%, I would have thought. And when you look at that, the the labour force stats, uh, Governor Lowe's latest statement, what do you think the likely impacts investors should take away here, Matthew? Well, central banks, including the RBA, will be engaged in further easing of monetary policy this year, I believe. Uh, interest rates will be falling in Australia uh, with the real possibilities we just said of um, the RBA taking uh, the cash rate into negative territory. Now, lower negative rates are one of the reasons why growth-oriented risk assets have had such strong performance since mid-April. But the fact that interest rates are so low and are falling reflects the difficulty now, I think, of sustaining economic momentum in the face of the second wave of the COVID pandemic. However, until we have a vaccine that is distributed, what we, I think, will see is income streams to those risky assets remaining under potential threat. So in my view, um, going forward, given the uncertainty around the economic outlook, assets that are tied to the provision of essential services and that have steady income streams offer a safer alternative at this juncture to straight out growth assets. And as you said, Matthew, all roads lead to that vaccine. Thanks very much for this morning's update. With Western Australia's Premier claiming a lockdown victory following that labour force data release, Europe's second wave highlights the ongoing high stakes dilemma that governments face. And with nations already carrying enormous levels of net debt and interest rates at historic lows, investors should be watching very closely future monetary and fiscal responses. 
And with its ability to target stimulus impact and work within the COVID constraints, that infrastructure stimulus spending that Matthew's been calling for continues to remain a very viable policy option. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's Take 10 podcast. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend ahead.